Good evening, everybody. And we'll begin with our chant of the refuges and the precepts. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Buddham Saranam Gachami, Dhammam Saranam Gachami, Sangam Saranam Gachami, Dutiampi Buddham Saranam Gachami, Dutiampi Dhammam Saranam Gachami, Dutiampi Sangam Saranangachami Tatiampi Buddham Saranangachami Tatiampi Dhammam Saranangachami Tatiampi Sangham Saranangachami Panatipata Veramni Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Adina Dana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Abrakmacharya Veramani Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Musa Wada Veramani Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Sura Meraya Majapamadatana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Vikala Bojana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Nacha Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilepana, Dharana, Mandana, Vipusanatana, Veramani, Sikapadam, Samadhi Ami, Ucha Sayana, Maha Sayana, Veramani, Sikapadam, Samadhi Ami, Idam, Me Silam, Maga Palanyanasa Pachayo O Tu. Equanimity the balance and equipoise in the mind, living with the heart of greatness, 
even in times of stress and uncertainty and turbulence. In a quote from eighth century Buddhist monk and poet and scholar Shantideva, it's not possible to control all external events. But if I simply control my mind, what need is there to control other things? Here in New Mexico, in Taos, New Mexico, we have what is considered a sacred mountain. And it's one amongst many mountains that surround the Taos Valley. This sacred mountain is act, this particular sacred mountain is actually within the Taos Pueblo, the village of the Tiwa Indians that sits on the north end of the town of Taos. This particular mountain is sacred to the Tiwa people, and it's also a sacred symbol for many Taosenos. I have the good fortune to be able to look out at it and, and to take it in, in every season, any time of the day or night, any day of the year, as it's clearly visible from where I live. This mountain, any mountain, simply sits where it is. The sun shines on it, rain and hail fall, fall on it, Snow covers it, lightning strikes it, fires sometimes rage on it. All sorts of life forms are born and die on it, living out their particular life patterns on and with the mountain. The mountain remains unshakable, unwavering. The mountain of radical acceptance the mountain of impartiality, the mountain of equanimity. The mountain itself is a live energy, a lively energy, but it only exists in relationship to all of the myriad, lively, constantly changing energies that constitute it. The mountain appropriately sustains and supports the activity that it's intricately and intimately connected to. The mountain of equanimity doesn't cling on. It isn't attached or adverse, averse to anything. We might say it lets life live through itself, closing off to nothing, holding on to nothing. And all of this happens with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance. And so we begin our exploration of upeka, upeka, the Pali word for equanimity. Equanimity is a very powerful force in our practice a powerful force in the whole of our life. In the Buddha's teachings, 
it's included as one of the 10 paramis, the 10 perfections. And it's one of the four Brahma Viharas, the four divine abidings, metta, karuna, compassion, mudita, appreciative joy or empathetic joy, and equanimity, upekka, as well as one of the seven factors of awakening, mindfulness, investigation, effort, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Upeka is also one of the two jhana factors, concentration for the concentration absorption states that are present in the fourth jhana, with these two factors being ikagata, one-pointedness, and equanimity, upeka. Upeka was the final factor to come into maturity before Siddhartha Gautama attained full awakening as this about-to-be Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree on that now famous night with an evenness and balance in his relaxed and powerful presence within the amazing grace of impartiality and balance. Seeing things clearly, and relinquishing, letting go, relinquishing every attachment to all formations of body and mind, and then breaking through to the great awakening, breaking through to the complete ending of suffering. The Buddha described what he called six-limbed equanimity meaning equanimity in relationship to what comes in at each of the six sense doors, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and the mind door. This six-limbed equanimity was described as the equanimity of one whose afflictive states or cankers, as the Buddha often called them, have been destroyed. destroyed temporarily, as happens in the deep concentration of jhana, or destroyed completely, finally, as occurs at the final completion of vipassana practice, and who abides in the natural state of purity in relationship to desirable and undesirable objects that come into focus at any of the six sense doors. And a quote from the Buddha. Here, a yogi, a meditator, a bhikkhu, whose cankers are bhikkhuni, whose cankers are destroyed, is neither overjoyed nor distraught on seeing a visual object with the eye hearing an audible sound with the ear, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. She, he dwells in equanimity, mindful and fully aware. Equanimity is the fearlessness and the great strength and ease of the 
heart, the mind to remain centered and unmoved in the midst of it all. The literal translation of the Pali word upeka is on looking. Equanimity looks on at the occurrence of physical and mental pleasure and pain by maintaining a neutral mode, by, by staying in the center, by staying in the middle, watching things as they arise and as they change and as they pass. On looking, it sees them fairly, without bias, without any favoritism. It sees them without partiality. So one attribute of equanimity itself, as it's described in the realm of Vedna, in the realm of feeling, is as neither painful nor pleasant feeling, neutral feeling. We could say that equanimity is the equipoise, the balance or equilibrium between the opposing forces in the mind of the desired and the undesired. This equipoise of equanimity sets off the weightiness of greed and the, the weightiness of aversion. It's that point of balance in the middle of the seesaw of life. The mind, the heart doesn't move towards, nor does it move away. I remember as a child that I just loved to find that point of balance when I was playing on the seesaw or what's called the teeter-totter with another child. Both of us suspended in our teeter-totter seat, perfectly balanced in midair, which would only last for a moment. And there was always a certain kind of happy and almost breathtaking feeling inside me in the moments when this would happen. The poet T.S. Eliot said it beautifully. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance and there is only the dance. This still point of equanimity is a place of protection, while at the same time being an experience of great spaciousness and strength of mind and heart. The Buddha used the metaphor of putting a spoonful of salt in a cup of water because of the small container, the water will be extremely salty. It'll be harsh. It'll be undrinkable. 
On the other hand, if we put a spoonful of salt in a large body of water, the size of the Rio Grande River, for instance, which is the largest river here in New Mexico, it of course won't have the same effect because of the enormous amount of water, because of the great wateriness, or we could say the great spaciousness that the salt is put into. Life is quite salty at times. It's just how it is. One aspect of the development of equanimity is about creating the spaciousness of mind and heart with which we can meet and look on at all of life's everyday experiences, as well as all the subtleties of internal and external phenomena that we come to know and see through our practice. To look on with balance, to look on with equipoise, to look on with the heart of greatness. With what we call in the suttas, or what is called in the suttas by the Buddha in relation to to equanimity as a factor of enlightenment, to look on with specific neutrality. So, So what does this mean, specific neutrality? It means that whatever states of consciousness are present, including at times the three other immeasurable divine abidings, metta, guna, and mudita, as well as the various wholesome and and beautiful states that are developed with concentration and mindfulness-based practice, or the other six enlightenment factors, specific neutrality means that any and all of these states are met, experienced, and known looked on at evenly through the mind of equanimity. The function of equanimity is to inhibit partiality. So as I've already mentioned, upeka manifests as neutrality. There's a wonderful little book of teachings from Zen master Dogen with commentary by Uchiyama Roshi called How to Cook your life, where Dogen uses the work of the monastery cook, the Tenzo, and our relationship to food to teach us, in this case, about equanimity. We can bring this teaching immediately close, right here and now, in relationship to the food that you're eating in this online retreat. Whether you're preparing your own food or whether someone else is doing this for you. And this is what Dogen says. Handle every, handle even a single leaf of a green in such a way that it manifests the body of the Buddha. This in turn allows the Buddha to manifest through the leaf. This is a power you cannot grasp with your rational mind. It operates freely according to the situation in a most natural way. At the same time, this power functions in our lives to clarify 
and settle activities and is beneficial to all living beings. And he goes on. A dish is not necessarily superior because you've prepared it with choice ingredients, nor is a soup inferior because you've made it with ordinary greens. When handling and selecting greens, do so wholeheartedly with a pure mind and without trying to evaluate their quality in the same way in which you would prepare a splendid feast. He goes on. In practicing the Dharma, delicious and ordinary tastes are the same, not two. There's an old saying, the mouth of a monk, a yogi, is like an oven. Just as an oven burns sandalwood for incense and dried cow dung, now of course in Dogen's time, there was no natural gas, propane, or electricity. So the sentence is, just as an oven burns both sandalwood for incense and dried cow dung for cooking without distinctions, our mouths should be the same. There should be no distinction between delicious food and food which is plain and simple. We should be satisfied with whatever we receive. So, how does one look on at the mind with equanimity? What contributes to this looking on in this way? What contributes to this capacity of relating to all things with equanimity? So a simple example in relationship to our practice. We sit and we find the mind is calm serene, maybe even tranquil, and this is known. And we recognize that the focusing power of the mind, concentration, is evenly and repeatedly connecting with whatever the object of attention is. For instance, the breath at the spot. The mind isn't listless, it's not agitated, but rather it's interested and appropriately energized. At those times, there isn't any interest in or any necessity for exerting or restraining or encouraging the mind in any way. Within our practice, we just simply and clearly recognizing and knowing this without any attachment, knowing that this is what is occurring, that these factors of mind are in place for a brief or maybe for a longer period of time. And this is actually something, when we recognize this in this way, that this is happening, this is actually something that contributes to the blossoming of the state, the blossoming of this factor of equanimity. And overall then, contributing to our capacity to relate to all things, to relate to all phenomena with equipoise and with composure.
during the time of the Buddha, his metaphor for the mind when it's in this mode was one is like a charioteer who looks with equanimity on horses progressing evenly. Well, more likely in our case, in this time, the metaphor might be more like one is the driver of a car who looks on with equanimity in a car that's running along evenly when it's set on cruise control. We're able to see and to know, we're able to take in what's in front of us and what's passing by with ease. This quality, this factor of mind allows the process of practice allows the development of mindfulness and, concentra and concentration and also the progress of insight to unfold, unfold, excuse me, to unfold without getting caught, without us getting mired in the habits of mind that can stop things up, such as the various habits of clinging, attachment, identification, all of which can create a block, can create a tangle in the flow of the process. Within the ambiance of equanimity, even the subtlety of the habits of attachment and identification, aversion and the comparing mind can be seen, known and let go of, allowing concentration, mindfulness, and understanding to blossom, to deepen, and to eventually mature. As we practice, we begin to taste equanimity along with the arising of other wholesome states, as you all have to varying degrees. And as I think each of you know, until equanimity is really, truly, fully blossoming and maturing, we can lose and we can regain our balance over and over and over again. Quite a number of years ago for the whole of the last two weeks of uh, many months of retreat that I was sitting, I practiced equanimity day in and day out continuously for those last two weeks. And I practiced it in the way that it's practiced as a Brahma Vihara, as the way that it's practiced as one of the sublime abidings. Silently repeating one equanimity phrase over and over and over again during those two weeks. First, directing it to myself. And then on through all of the same categories that are used for metta practice. And this is the equanimity phrase that I used. I am the air, meaning I am the air of all of my, I am the air of my comma, which means uh, I am the air of all my deeds, all my actions of mind, speech, and body. My happiness or suffering depends upon my actions, not upon my wishes for myself. 
I am the heir of my comma. My happiness or suffering depends upon my actions, not upon my wishes for myself. Well, by the end of those two weeks of continuous equanimity practice in this way, there was quite a deep and quiet sense of balance, quite a deep and quiet sense of evenness and neutrality in the heart and mind. A day or two before the end of the retreat, the thought came up, well, there's equanimity here. Seems to be a fair, fairly abiding, deep and abiding equanimity. And the next thought was, well, I, I wonder if there's an equanimity test. If this was a Zen, I'm still thinking, my thinking, these are my thoughts. Uh, if this was a Zen session, any good Zen teacher would do something creatively startling to check my equanimity. But this is a Vipassana retreat and Vipassana teachers don't do things like that. And then those thoughts just disappeared. Well, later that same day, I was startled true, in true Vipassana fashion. An equanimity test Vipassana style. I got a note signed by one of my equanimity teachers. Though the note was actually from all five of the teachers who were teaching this particular retreat. And it said, we would like you to give the Dana talk, the generosity talk to the yogis tomorrow. Well, I was not a Dhamma teacher at that point. I had no ambition, no wish whatsoever to teach the Dhamma. And I read that note a few times and equanimity flew right out the window. <laughs> My heart felt like it stopped. The old habit of fear flew right in the window, right into my heart. And I said to myself, I can't, I can't do this now. My old habit was really showing up, that fear habit. I've been silent for so many weeks, so many months even, and so deeply into practice. I cannot get up in front of all my fellow yogis and speak. It's totally impossible. And then the heart and mind relaxed and saw, clearly saw what had just occurred. And the thought came in then, ah, ah yes, this is my equanimity test, of course and I can do it, and I want to do it. And at that moment, a tremendous flood of gratitude came into the mind and to the heart. Gratitude for the teachers of that retreat. Gratitude for the retreat staff at the center. Gratitude for the teachings, gratitude for the practice, and gratitude for the Buddha. And just as suddenly as it had gone, equanimity was back. And what I was being asked to do felt like the most natural thing in the world to be doing. 
until Upeka has matured, we lose and we regain the balance of equipoise, the balance of equanimity over and over and over again. Upeka manifests as quieting fear, quieting boredom, dislike, quieting resentment, and quieting the self-judgment that can manifest as guilt, disapproval, and self-doubt of not being good enough. It also manifests as quieting liking, quieting pride, attachment, and the judgment of approval in relationship to what we think of as ourself, me, my experiences. Equanimity also manifests in quieting the attachment and the fear regarding other aversive states that might come up in relationship to other people. Along the way of our practice, when equanimity is, has arisen and it's developing, in those moments, fear, resentment, attachment, identification, the judgments of, of approval or disapproval, all of this subsides when equanimity has arisen and is clearly developing. Within the clear space of a momentary or longer true neutrality. There's nothing for greed, nothing for aversion to stick to when they start to arise. Equanimity fails when it produces what's called the equanimity of unknowing, which the Buddha called worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance. A mouthful of words. So what does this mean? Worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance. This occurs when we don't clearly see or we don't clearly see through the object of our attention with a focused attention of a concentrated mindfulness and investigation that's rooted in kind-heartedness. And instead, we're blindly seduced by and swept away in the happenings, the various happenings of life, including some of the inner experiences that happen within our meditation practice. Seemingly, seemingly, equanimous with it all. This is not Upeka. It's what the Buddha called indifference based in or produced by ignorance. And some words from the Buddha. On seeing a vis visible object with the eye or in relationship to contact through any of the six sense doors, equanimity arises in the foolish, infatuated, ordinary woman or ordinary man, in the untaught ordinary woman or ordinary man who hasn't seen or conquered his or her limitations, who hasn't understood or conquered future results, 
meaning kama or karma, who is unperceiving of danger in relationship to attachment or aversion. Such equanimity doesn't see through the visible, visible object. Such so-called equanimity is actually worldly-minded indifference based in ignorance. The Buddha was often very direct, quite straightforward, and very succinct in his teachings. So a personal story. When I first began living here in Taos, I very quickly noticed that there were many, many beautiful handcrafted things in the store windows in town. And at times I would get, became quite infatuated with what I was seeing and sometimes would get caught in the delusion of needing what I was seeing that very painful contraction of the must-have mind. So I decided to do a practice since I was gonna be living in the midst of all these beautifully handcrafted things in this town of Taos. I decided to do a practice of walking along and looking in the shop windows and observing the process of my mind and my heart. And I did this a lot over months, not every day, but you know, often. Eventually, I began to just appreciate the beauty of what I was seeing with, the great, with great appreciation for the amazing creative capacities of the human beings who made all of these amazingly beautiful objects that I was seeing. It was a great relief, finally. Took a while. The Dalai Lama tells a story about being taken to a particular area in London by a friend. And as they walked along, uh, passing various shops that sell all kinds of tiny mechanical parts, which is uh, a particular interest and fascination of the Dalai Lama's. He said he found himself having some strong inner feelings of wanting them all. And then he said at, at, at one point, as he was walking along and wanting it all, he realized that he didn't even know what most all of them were for. He just wanted them. I'm sure that every one of us has experienced this, some pretense of equanimity within ourselves in the midst of greed, in the midst of dislike, midst of boredom, resentment, anger, fear, or disappointment, or in the midst of attraction and desire. And the glossing over, the ignorance, ignoring these states and pretending to ourselves the pretense of equanimity, the, the attitude of, well, yeah, it's all just fine, or, or this attitude of, well, it really doesn't matter. Both of these attitudes, often accompanied by a slight 
or maybe not so slight, moving away from a contraction in the body or maybe an inner sense of grasping towards that we may not be at all aware of. And this, of course, is not equanimity, but it's actually indifference based in ignorance, which is rooted in delusion. Indifference is the near enemy of equanimity. Indifference masquerading, we could say, as upeka. And we all also know from our own experience that when we're inflamed with greed and dislike and inflamed with fear or grief or resentment, it's extremely difficult, or it just isn't even at all possible to look on at those moments with a true equanimity. Upeka is rooted in an attentive, clear presence of mind, not on dullness or indifference. It's not a kind of, kind of casual passing mood, and it's not produced by exertion. We can't make it happen. It's the result. It's one of the fruits of our practice the fruits of training the mind, training the heart through the development and the blossoming of the factors of mindfulness, concentration, investigation, a balanced effort, joy, tranquility, loving kindness, and compassion. A true equanimity is able to meet all of the vicissitudes of life. These flip-flops, we could say, that we encounter in our mind in relationship to what are classically called the eight worldly winds. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame or distinction and disrepute or disrespect or disregard that come our way throughout our life. True, true equanimity is able to meet all of these sometimes harsh feeling or experiences that feel harsh, these evaluations, these criticisms, and these experiences that inevitably come our way throughout our life. And a true equanimity is able to regenerate its strength from our inner resources the resources that we've developed through our diligent practice. And from the Buddha, from the Sutta Nipata, he says, develop the mind of equilibrium. You will always be getting praise and blame, but do not let either affect the poise of the mind. Follow the calmness, follow the absence of pride.
there's uh, an amazing practice that I've been told was, and maybe, I'm not sure, but maybe is still occasionally practiced by the Hopi Indians. I do not recommend this practice, but we can take it as a metaphor for us in relationship to the cultivation and the manifestation of the power of fearlessness, evenness of mind and heart, and the protection that is one of the really great strengths of equanimity. And this is from the book of the Hopi by Frank Waters. There were all kinds of snakes, rattlesnakes, big bull snakes, racers, sidewinders, gopher snakes, about 60, all tangled on the floor. The singing stirred them. They moved in one direction, then another, looking over all the men in the circle. The men never moved. They just kept singing with a kind expression on their faces. The snakes began to roll in the sand, taking their bath. Then a big yellow rattler moved slowly toward an old man, singing with his eyes closed, climbed up his crossed leg, coiled in front of his breech cloth, and went to sleep. Pretty soon this old man had five or six snakes crawling over his body, raising their head to look at his closed eyes and peaceful face, then going to sleep. It showed they had found their friend looking within the heart of this one upon whose body they chose to rest. That is the way snakes show who are good and kind men with pure hearts. True equanimity, true equanimity will possess the power of protection and also a wholesome resistance in relationship to the mind, the heart getting seduced by and caught up in states of fear, states of greed, various states of aversion. And equanimity also possesses the power of renewing itself but only if it's deeply rooted in a growing understanding of the true nature of things. There are two particular understandings that I'd like to spend just a little bit of time exploring with you this evening, that in that as they develop along the way of our practice and eventually ripen are the root of equanimity. The first of these is our growing understanding how the vicissitudes, how all of the ups and downs, the eight worldly winds that I mentioned, how they originate, how they come to be. And this is the understanding of karma in Sanskrit or kama in Pali. So just a brief exploration now of kama. What is it? What is kama? The understanding that the various experiences of stress, of suffering, 
and the experiences of ease are the results of our kama, meaning the results of our actions, our actions of thought, speech, and deed. Right here and now in this lifetime and on back and back and back. This is kama, this is our kama. We can say that we're born, we spring out of the womb of kama. And even though we may or we may not like it at times, we are undeniably the heirs of our kama. So a very ordinary everyday example we've all experienced. Just as soon as we've spoken words or performed an action, we've totally lost control over it. And yet it remains with us and in some way inevitably returns to us as our due inheritance. The truth of the way of things is that everything that everything that happens and the ease or the dis-ease in our heart, the ease or the dis-ease in our mind is the outcome of our own mind's relationship to all of the happenings in life, internally and externally. In other words, our suffering and our happiness in this lifetime in any given moment is due to our own mind. Our motivations and our responses or our reactions to phenomena. Not due to our hopes and our wishes for ourselves. And not due to some other person or some outer antagonistic or seemingly strange or foreign world. As this understanding begins to take root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. And so is one of the roots of equanimity. When we begin to see that we only meet ourselves, meaning we only meet our own mind in relationship to everything that happens around us and everything that happens within us. What is there to fear? This then is an opening, an opportunity for the heart, the mind to begin to relax. And we begin to know that we can change our mind. That in fact, we're not trapped on the karmic wheel running around and around and around. This is the change that our practices of sila, samadhi, and panya afford us. But of course, as we've all experienced, 
fear, uncertainty, and insecurity arise along the way. And at the same time, as we traverse this path, we clearly begin to see and to know that the refuge where fear can be dispelled is through our good deeds. Refuge from this particular perspective is in wholesome motivations, wholesome intentions, wholesome thought, wholesome words, and performing wholesome actions. And as we take this refuge, there comes to be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past and a growing courage to perform more and more wholesome deeds right now, even in the midst of what might be some hardship in our current life. Our practice itself, this incredible training of the mind and heart that we're doing is a very good deed, really the best, and the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in and through all aspects of our life. One of the things that's been really important for me in understanding Kama is that it's always, always the right time to perform wholesome actions, always the right time to do good deeds. It's never too late. I mean, maybe we've heard, well, too bad. It's just too late, too bad. Or maybe we've heard, maybe some of you are too young for this one, but some of us have heard, well, an old dog, we just, you can't learn a new trick if you're an old dog. So forget it, it's too late. It's never too late. And so we practice this and it becomes established in us and it becomes a refuge. And at some point we know for sure, as was said by one of the Buddhist disciples, more and more ceases the misery and the evil rooted in the past. And in this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else then can the future bring other than an increase of the good? As this becomes more and more a certainty in our mind and heart, the mind becomes more serene, more tranquil. As we take or as we engage in this refuge, we gain the strength of the evenness and balance and patience of the heart of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and difficulties in our practice and in our life as a whole. Along the way of our practice, with the development and the blossoming of relative equanimity, we find that we are gaining the strength to endure when we need to endure and to see clearly when that's what's being called for. We have the possibility of not continuing to fall blindly into the same holes over and over and over again, but to begin to walk down a different street. The understanding of Kama can imbue us with 
a powerful motivation to free ourselves from karma, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again have thrown us into repeated suffering. As we more and more clearly, clearly see our own craving and delusion and our habitual tendencies to create and engage in situations that strain and sap our strength and sap our healthy resistance, a wholesome disgust, as the Buddha called it, arises. And our motivation to practice in order to free ourselves from craving and delusion is then strengthened. The fruit of deliverance of a deep and clear experience and understanding of equanimity is the escape from tanha, the Pali word, which means insatiable thirst. The fruit and the deliverance of a deep and clear experience and understanding of equanimity is the escape from insatiable thirst, tanha. So this first understanding, insight, that is the basis of equanimity is a growing understanding of kama. The second insight that equanimity is based on is the teaching and understanding of anatta, not self. From this perspective, there's no one, no self performing any deeds, nor do the results affect any self. The fact is, the truth is, that it's the delusion, it's the wrong view of a separate, static, solid self, a separate, separate me that creates suffering and that disturbs equanimity. If we claim ownership, meaning this is mine, this is me, this is who I am, the vicissitudes of life will always throw us into the realm of suffering. So for instance, if, if this or that aspect of our personality, some particular quality of ours is criticized or blamed, one often thinks I'm blamed and equanimity is shaken. When we receive approval or praise for something that we've done, we often think, well, I've been praised, I'm a success. And equanimity is then disturbed. If this or that work or maybe some aspect of our practice that we've engaged in doesn't succeed or isn't praised in the way that we want it to be, one might think, well, my practice or my work has failed. Or we might think I've failed. And equanimity is shaken. If wealth or a loved one is lost, one often thinks what's mine has gone, and equanimity is shaken. The unwavering mountain of equanimity is always shaken in the delusion, always shaken with the identification of me, mine, I am. As understanding deepens and the heart opens, there's an increase increasing ease of the constriction, constricted feelings and thoughts 
based in self-centeredness. Unshakable equanimity is established by, by giving up, by relinquishing all possessive thoughts, the thoughts of mind, with that, that thought itself, uh, certainly uh, maybe quite a daunting thought. And so we begin with the small things from which it's easy to detach oneself and gradually, gently working up to the possessions, the goals and identifications that we so tenaciously cling to. The first time I taught at the Forest Refuge, the long-term practice uh, center at the Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts, I was there for two months and I was the first very first visiting teacher there. And I was there long enough to really settle in. And yet again, and again, <laughs> there was the awareness that the house I was staying in wasn't mine. And it came about in small and very simple and sometimes surprising ways. When I first got there, there was no telephone in the house. So I lobbied for a phone which in moments felt like it was for me. And there was a degree of tension and stress in this lobbying for my phone. But in truth, the phone was for many, many other people who would be using this house over many, many years. And at one point I was told, okay, yeah, there'll be a phone. We've okayed a phone for the house. But when that would happen was unknown. Well, then at that point, there was a quick letting go. No more thoughts about it occurred. I relaxed and I really truly felt that it just, at that point, just didn't matter if the phone arrived while I was staying in the house or not, because it wasn't for me. It wasn't mine. At another point when I was there, the same two months, being the first uh, visiting teacher, it was decided to purchase a rug for the living room. There wasn't a rug in the living room yet. Well, Jeannie, the housekeeper at that time, brought over the rug catalog for us to decide which rug to order. And it would clearly wasn't a rug for me, no doubt about it. it, wasn't for my house. We were choosing for anyone, we were choosing for everyone. And I noticed that it was such a different experience in the heart with this, not that subtle contraction of something being mine, something being for me. There was an openness and a, a spaciousness, no contraction, no clinging in the choosing. And it was a lot more fun to do it that way. So the small thing, First, that we think are ours and working up to giving up to letting go, to relinquishing other stickier thoughts of self, beginning to relinquish the identification, maybe with some of the qualities that we're identified with is who we think we are, our personality. It's the thought of these being who I am that we relinquish. The clinging thought of these being who I am, that we let go of, that we give up. Beginning with maybe small aspects of our personality. Qualities of maybe seeming minor importance. And very slowly 
and gently with care through our practice, working up to letting go of identification, practicing detachment in relationship to those emotions and aversions that we may regard as the center of our being and letting go of identification with the fruits that arise from our meditation practice as well. Ajahn Sumedho, the former abbot of the Amaravati Monastery in England, shares a wonderful way of practicing with this. When a particular habitual tendency of his shows up, and in this case, he's talking about the critical mind, he says, oh, oh, there's my personality. I think that's great. (laughs) Try it. Can our personality be impersonal? Can we relinquish our, uh, relinquish our identity with this or that being who I am, being me, including positive emotions or, of course, aversions, and even some of the specific gifts that we have, all, as well as the wholesome and beautiful states that manifest through our practice. All, or maybe just some of which we identify as maybe being the very center of our being. To whatever degree we abandon, to whatever degree we relinquish thoughts of mine, of me, of I am, to whatever degree we forsake thoughts of self, equanimity will enter the heart. When we realize, when we really truly come to know anything as void of a self, in those moments, how could it cause us any agitation due to lust, clinging, hatred, fear, or grief? Consequently, the teaching and the practice of anatta is an important guide along the path to perfect equanimity and our guide along the path to liberation. Equanimity, the unshakable balance of mind, of heart, is rooted in insight. The first understanding being that insight of understanding of kama, and the second being anatta. the heart, the mind of specific neutrality, equanimity. It isn't cold or heartless or dull. It doesn't manifest out of any emotional emptiness, but rather out of a fullness or we could say completeness of connection and understanding. At some point in your practice, equanimity may evolve from being relative equanimity to absolute equanimity. In the progress of insight, with equanimity, when equanimity is strong, fulfilled, and mature, concentration and insight 
occur coupled together without either one exceeding the other, along with an imbalance with all of the other factors of awakening. With all of these occurring at that point with what has been called a single taste, the single taste of awakening, the single taste of liberation, liberation from the cankers, deliberate deliverance from suffering. At that point, there's clear insight knowledge into the dangers of the afflictive emotions, into the dangers of what are called the defilements and clear insight knowledge of the advantages of purification. Understanding at this point produces what the Buddha called a satisfiedness, a purifiedness, and a clarifiedness within one, which is manifesting due to one's capacity for onlooking equanimity. The Buddha spoke about this as absolute equanimity or unworldly or holy equanimity. And in the Buddha's words, just as all the streams of the world enter the great ocean and all the waters of the sky rain into it, but not increase or decrease of the great ocean is seen, such is the nature of holy equanimity. The equanimity of an awakened one is unshakable because it's absolute. It's absolute simply because it clings to nothing. This is our possibility. Every moment, every circumstance is another chance to experience things as they are rather than as we wish them or fear them to be. As we drop more deeply into the presence and wisdom within our own heart-mind of equanimity in relationship to the way of things, we're, render, we're rendered free to use this treasure to respond to life within us and to respond to the life around us. And as Buddhist Teacher Joan Sutherland said, it is our freedom to fall willingly into the frightened, blasted, beautiful, tender world, just as it is. To know for ourselves that we have the treasure, that we have this treasure, and that we're free to use it, no matter the circumstances. And as 8th century Chan Buddhist teacher Amma said, this is a happy life. And so we practice. And we keep on practicing. We practice in retreat. We practice at home in retreat. We practice at home not in retreat. We practice in the midst of our daily lives. We practice with sincerity and we practice with diligence. We practice with a growing understanding and blossoming of insight.
as awakening beings, we practice with aspiration and with determination. And because of all of this, it's inevitable that concentration, mindfulness, and all the wholesome factors of mind and heart, as well as the liberating insights will sprout, blossom, and eventually mature within us. It's our kama, we could say. So I'd like to close with two short pieces from the Udana. The Udana is, are the inspired utterances of the Buddha. And the first inspired utterance from the Buddha. Whose man, whose mind stands like a mountain, steady, is not perturbed. Unattached to things that arouse attachment, unangered by things that provoke anger. When her or his mind is cultivated thus, how can suffering come to her? How can suffering come to him? And the second inspired utterance from the Buddha. For one who clings, motion exists, meaning the movement of the mind. But for one who clings not, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there's no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where no coming nor going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond, nor any place between the two. This, in truth, is the end of suffering. And let's sit silently for just a moment or two.
And thank you for listening to the Dhamma. And thank you for your diligent practice. And closing our, our Dhamma Talk evening with this sharing of blessings chant. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world. May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death. May those who are friendly, indifferent, or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice. And through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge, unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide. The Sangha is my supreme support through the supreme power of all these. May darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.